0: let me begin the service today by asking you guys a question is there anyone too sinful to be saved is there anyone too sinful to be saved this morning we look at the conversion of one of the most, tori- the most notorious men the church had ever faced in the history of the christian church this would be one of the most notorious men that persecuted the church and it is incredibly applicable for us today because we have here today in Acts chapter 9 um, basically a model for what it looks like for one to turn from their sins and then trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what they've done in the past so long as they are repenting of their sin and then trusting in Jesus. Today we continue working through the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles. It was written by a doctor a man named Luke, and it was written around the early 60's, and he sought to present to his readers an orderly account of this man and this ministry, uh, Jesus Christ, the man and his ministry. He also wanted to hold out to the church um, a story, a historical account, an orderly account of how the church actually was birthed, as it was laid on the foundation of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and Acts tracks how the gospel goes, starts first in Jerusalem and then sort of expands to the ends of the earth. And so today in Acts chapter 9 specifically, we look more at this to the ends of the earth. We see how God was preparing to bring his gospel there, more specifically, as he was preparing to do so, through the choosing, the calling, and the converting of a man named Saul. Also, he went by, a man, uh, he went by the name Paul same person, Saul, Paul. So if you read through your Bibles, a lot of the letters in the New Testament are written by a man named Paul, Paul the Apostle. Saul is the same person. So we have to ask the question, as we're going to see today, how does a man go from persecuting the church to then dedicating his life to laying its very foundation? Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, Uh, Now, just for you all, for you all note-takers, normally, uh, you know, I might have points that structure my sermon. Today, we're just going to walk through the text, so you can just write notes uh, wherever you think is important to you, which is basically the whole sermon. (laughs) Uh, In previous chapters, we saw that the church was blossoming, right? But not without resistance. So in chapter 7, we encounter the first martyr for the faith. His name is Stephen the Deacon. He's dragged before the Jewish authorities on trumped-up charges, but by God's grace, and then also by the power of the Spirit, he fearlessly declares the gospel in front of his accusers. And this does nothing but enrage the authorities, right? It says that they stopped their ears. It's like they didn't want to hear it anymore. They drag him out of the city, and they stone him. They kill him. And this is what Scripture says. It says, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose on that day and all were scattered except the disciples. So you have the disciples staying in Jerusalem and all of the other followers were scattered to the ends of the earth. And guess who was approving of this killing of Stephen. Look at uh, chapter 8 verse 1. It says there really clearly, And Saul approved of his execution. Then look at verse 3 of chapter 8. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This here is what Saul was like. Dragging people off, throwing them into prison. And Saul was an impressive figure. Trained by possibly the greatest Pharisee of the day. His name was Gamaliel, whom we've met in previous chapters. Paul most likely, very likely, had a stellar education. He certainly was very well, well read, as we, as we see that in his other apostles, uh, his epistles. And then by his own admission, this is what he says. He says, you know, sort of uh, naming all the things that he could have taken confidence in. He said he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's the same tribe that, uh, where Israel got his first, its first king, Saul. Saul was the first king, and here this Saul is named after that first king. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so he's culturally, you know, he's very much a Jew. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. So he, he was known for his strict adherence to all of the laws. This man is a lawkeeper. And then he says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to self-righteous doing of the law, he says, blameless. All right, so this guy, he is like very much a top dog. And so the average population, if we were all Jews in Jerusalem, we would want to be this man, Okay. But for the Christians, we would have been utterly scared of them. Saul had such a disdain for Christians because of this idea. The Christians said, yeah, God will send the Messiah to deliver his people, and he's going to deliver his people through death on a cross? That would have been ridiculous to to, uh, the Jews. God had, after all, said that one who is hung on a tree is cursed. And this is exactly what was done to Jesus, was it not? He hung on a tree, a cross made of wood, and he died. What kind of Messiah dies in weakness? So in arresting these Jews, he actually believed that he was doing God a favor. Okay, He's actually working on the side of God to approve the killings of these Christians. He was in service to the Most High. That's what his mentality was like. And so he persecuted them with zeal in Jerusalem and then beyond. Uh, you see how zealous he is here. Okay, get that in your mind. He's a persister personality. He's an achiever personality. He loves the rules. And he persecutes uh, the Christians in Jerusalem and then beyond. And who is, And he's nipping at their heels, right? They scatter, and he's chasing them down. Um, I have a silly example. Uh, one day I came home, and I think it was like Thanksgiving, uh thanksgiving meal time and my dad was preparing the meal and he was killing all the flies in his house. He was going around the house to trying to kill all the flies, and there were a lot of flies for some reason. And we were like, okay dad, you know, they're just flies, so you could buy like the fly sticky tape and then they're going to come and get stuck and they kill themselves. And then he was so, he got so worked up about these flies that he actually went outside of his house to kill all the flies outside <laughs> so that they wouldn't come inside. And it just boggled my mind, like, you know, that's what doors are for. Um, but that kind of zeal to squash these flies is the same zeal that Paul, Saul had to squash the Christians. They were like pests to the great I Am, or so he thought. And so he's pursuing them down to, to towns, foreign towns. All right, look at what he does there in verses, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And this is where we begin our passage today. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's what he's doing. He's still breathing threats and murder. So here you have in Acts chapter 8, the killing, the approval of Stephen. And over here, you know, after the gospel spreads, some people are converted. He's still doing what he's doing. This is who he is. These descriptions are really telling. So in 8, chapter 8, verse 3, He's dragging off women. He's locking them up. Uh, He's said to be ravaging the church. I mean, what ravages things in your guy's mind? Actually, it's supposed this this word ravaging, it's associated with Psalm 80 verse 3, where wild boars go and they ravage these fields and they destroy a vineyard. So Saul here is pictured to be this wild boar, ravaging not fields, but the bodies of Christians. And he's breathing out, you know, you can imagine he's like snorting out threats of murder. Um, and then later on in the chapter, he's said to wreak havoc, which some have translated to maul. So he's like mauling the church. Um, the followers of Judaism would have applauded him for these things, right? He has righteous zeal, but we see he is more like uh, this wild beast, as one commentator has said. So, continue on in the passage. So, with this pharisaical zeal to hunt down these Christians, look at verse 2. He goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which is in Syria. So that if he found any belonging to the way, or the way of salvation, that's what Christians were known as. Later on, we're going to see that they are called first as Christians, um, uh, a number of chapters. But here they're called the way. Men or women... So that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's what he's going about doing. Um, and he has such stubbornness, right? He, he grabs hold of the papers. So he has all the backing of Israel, right, behind him, here in these papers. He hops on his horse, right? Damascus is about a 135-mile journey. So off he goes, maybe, you know, let's say that's a few days' journey. And he's almost there, right? All the backing of Israel... All of that persister-achiever mentality, he's going to squash what was started in Jerusalem. He squashed the Christians there, and now he's going to go and hunt them all down. All, so he thought, for the glory of God. Look at uh, what happens there in the rest of three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He has no idea what's going on. Blank, bright lights flash around him, and we know he had companions. They all fall to the ground. And he can't even answer, answer Jesus' question, right? The risen Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, according to the passage, who are you, Lord? Now, we had to remember, you know, going back to the mentality that he had, the Christians were nuts. This Messiah... Who said, who is said to deliver his people and deliver through his death, and now he's saying he's risen from the dead? These guys are crazy. And Jesus says, Jesus, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So this here is an appearance of the divine, right? The risen Lord Jesus. Before you would have thought it was nuts, but now here Jesus appears to him, appearance of the divine. You know, if you. God had appeared to people in the past, the angel of the Lord, they're basically pre, um, before the incarnation, the appearances of Christ at times, um, and when and when this would happen, you know, people would freak out. So you think of like, let's say, you know, angels, right, they're not even divine, they're just like heavenly beings, let's just say. You know, when normal angels would appear, you know, they're not... They don't cause people to go, Oh, you know, we want to squish your cheeks because you're so chubby and fluffy and and angelic to make you want to pee in your pants. Right? And this is Jesus appearing to a man who is persecuting Him, Christ says. This here is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And Acts says because He has done that and because He is, in fact, God, He is Lord, the one who rules over everything. You know, I can't help but think that when he was knocked off of that horse when his face was in the dust, you know, those words of Gamaliel returned to him. Do you remember what Gamaliel said? The the Jerusalem leaders, they want to kill the Christians, right? Peter being one of them. And then Gamaliel steps up and and he says something. He himself is a Pharisee and this is what he says. And I think these these words were running through Saul's mind when he fell to the ground. (coughs) Gamaliel says, if this movement of people who gather in the name of God, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And then he says this, you might even be found opposing God. Saul realized that though he had been steeped in the law, though he had been a Pharisee, and though he had great zeal, he had got it all wrong. Instead of pleasing God, he now realized with crystal clarity that what he was doing was actually opposing God himself. Imagine all that conviction. You know, presumably here as he is confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, all those very things he denied, then you know the Spirit is convicting him of. Jesus says, Rise in verse six, enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. I love how, how um the close of this section of the story is sort of wrapped up look at verse seven Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open he saw nothing so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank here is the great Saul right he grew up in the city of Tarsus he had a fantastic education by Gamaliel grew up in Jerusalem, the great Saul with all of the backing of authority from Israel in these extradition papers, and he goes to try and stamp out the Christians. He Imagine, this is a man who is bold, a man who is confident, and he's writing to persecute the Christians. And how in the Lord's sovereignty does he end up entering into Damascus? Here I think this is just a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? Um, turn to to Acts 26, and here he speaks, Paul is recounting his own testimony here, this is his own admission, Acts 26 verse 9, this is the zeal that went on in his head, and in his spirit, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. That's zeal. And now how does the Lord have him go into Damascus? The once all proud Saul, relying on his self-righteousness, goes in blind, needing a man to steady his hands, to steady his walk. And he goes into Damascus, to the place where he was going to persecute Christians, weak and humbled, convicted. And so he fasts. No food, no drink. Later on in the narrative, we see that he is praying Though he intended to attack, now he is to wait. Though he came in all authority of Israel, now he submits to the true authority. And Jesus tells him to wait for his mission, for Jesus would tell him what he is to do. So you see how Saul's life is being flipped upside down right here. Saul who persecutes Christians becomes one. This here is a mark of the Christian. Christians are those who acknowledge who believe in our hearts the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we ought to submit our entire lives to him who rules over all. So the question for us today, like Paul should have been asking, is what is it that we are giving our lives to? What's the authority that you all submit to? Is it the authority of your own ways and your own philosophies? Is it the authority of your parents to the exclusion of Jesus Christ? Why not submit your whole entire lives to God, the Lord, who reigns over all? The Bible holds out clearly that we are to do this because He's created everything. So much better, right, than our own thinking is to submit our lives to the thinking of the very one who planned this all, right? Right? just naturally, it just makes sense so much more than thinking, you know what, I one out of the 7 billion people am going to determine how I ought to live. Can you just imagine what would happen if the 7 billion people in the world uh, actually decided to do that? How chaotic this world would be? (coughs) Or you can think about you know, all the different countries, and the countries are all submitting to their own authorities, even though they say that, okay, we still submit to authority, and each country is able to determine how they ought to live, and the social standards, the social structures, the responsibilities, and where has that led us today? Is there something wrong with this world? Absolutely. The Bible says that we all, all people, should be submitting our lives to the one who has the true authority, namely the one who has created us. That is God, right? But the problem, where it goes wrong, is that we say, no, we want to live our own ways. We are autonomous, and we determine for ourselves uh, what is right and wrong. And that's what one person has called the de-godding of God. You knock off God from His rightful place, and you put yourself there. And the Bible calls that sin, something deeply that Paul is convicted of here. He is not actually honoring God, even though he thinks he is in his head. Look at verses uh, 10 and 12, 10 to 12, as we move on here to the next part of the story. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And here we're going to see, okay, Paul is convicted of a sin. He's blind and now God is going to open his eyes through the ministry of one of his servants. That is Ananias. Okay, so Ananias is supposed to go and talk to him. This is what the Lord says. In a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So right there you have such a, such a different response. Ananias is like, Here I am, use me. And Paul is like, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight which is uh, from my research is, is still the main thoroughfare in Damascus and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight can you imagine right there the long pregnant pause of Ananias Ananias knows who Saul is Right, look look what it says in 13. But Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard many. I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem." And God is saying, yeah, "Thanks for telling me that, like I didn't know that." And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Uh, so this guy is scared, right? He's timid. Saul has come 135 miles to kill them. He's scared, he's timid, he's fearing for his life. I mean, this guy, Ananias, he could have, could have just seen Stephen, right, make his bed with a bed of stones. He could have seen, you know, the hailstorm of stones coming at his head that would eventually kill him. So he's fearful. Um, And yet Jesus Christ wants him to go there to minister to this man. So that's Ananias' response. You, you know, I would have, had God commissioned me to do that, <laughs> I would have gone to Damascus, okay, I'll go there, and, you know, peek behind the door to to see what Saul was doing, because he's there to kill me, right? I would have said, I would have been freaking out, and I would have said, uh, had I gone in to pray for him, I would have sent, like, Saul to the corner and gone like this. You know, I'm going to lay my hands on this. Jesus, is that okay if I pray for Paul like this? Because this guy's going to kill me. But did you notice what what Ananias does? Look there in 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Okay, you don't see any fear at that point in time, right? And laying his hands on him. So he wouldn't do what I would do. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you notice what Ananias calls Saul? Saul he calls him brother one commentator notes that these two words brother Saul were most likely the, the first two words he heard Christian to Christian this is a guy who hated Christians and yet here you have humble Ananias praying for him brother Saul with his hands on him beautiful picture of what Christian community is to be like Saul, who persecuted Christians, becomes one, and now he must depend on them, right? Because he's the one. Saul had the vision that Ananias would come and lay his hands on him to restore his healing. Saul goes to imprison and kill them, but in God's kindness, they, his would-be victims, are there to receive him. How humbly it must have been for for him to to, to feel his need to be given back sight, right? He feels the need to be given back sight, and he receives back his sight from one he called, he would would have previously considered blind. You know, I'm guessing that this memory informed how Paul would eventually go on to write about uh, how we are all members of the same body, and we're all dependent upon the head that is Jesus Christ the Lord, and then now for the body, that is the church, to be interacting well. Each member needs to be contributing here. Paul himself, Saul himself, needs another here to help him. Saul, who persecuted Christians, becomes one, and now he must depend on them. But not just that. As he's, as God is flipping his life upside down, Saul, who persecuted Christians, must now live for them. Must now live for them. So look back again at 15. This is what Jesus says. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is is exactly what he does, as we're going to see later on in Acts. We're going to stop the series in Acts today, and then we're going to pick it back up in the fall. And we're going to see how Paul goes around preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to kings, And then also Jews. So God's salvation, his gospel, is going to everyone. It doesn't matter what what background we are. It doesn't matter if we are Jew or Chinese American. All of us, if we repent in Christ, if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we can have this salvation. Which is why Pastor Rick read Acts, um, sorry, um, the scripture reading that we did from the Psalms. Everyone who believes is a child of Abraham. So we are Abraham's seed through the seed that is Jesus Christ. He is the one to come from Abraham who would bring the blessing to all nations. So Paul goes on, Saul goes on to preach the gospel to Gentiles, to kings, the children of Israel. And he does this through suffering. Great, great suffering. Here he's given a new mission. He says live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only does the Christian submit to the true authority, namely God and namely Christ, here the person is reoriented in terms of his life mission to follow, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. He is to carry his name. So you can imagine Paul, Saul, going to different places, carrying the name before the Gentiles, the kings of the children of Israel. And saying that is the God that I follow, the God that we all should obey and listen to. Um, And we see him doing this in the rest of the passage there. Um, So if you go on and look at, let's say, verse 20 of chapter 9, he says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now we know from Galatians that when he was converted, he actually goes down to Arabia, And then he returns to Damascus, which, you know, Acts doesn't need to... uh, Luke here isn't recording every single detail of his life. He's just saying at some point in time he was with with the disciples of Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He's proclaiming in the synagogues, and he knows that the leaders in the synagogues will want to persecute him. And he says, now this is important, he is the son of God. That's the message that he's carrying forward. And then he looked there in 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. These were the very things that he had denied previously. Jesus being God this is ridiculous, and now he's proclaiming he is the Son of God, the one given by God to deliver men from their sins, by dying on the cross. Bearing the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve, on the cross as a substitute. That's what it means when it says Jesus was the Christ there in 22. He actually was the anointed one, the Messiah, to bear his people's sins. That's what he's heralding forward. He knows that just as he has received salvation, so we all too, so they all too can receive salvation. If we would actually repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Um, so that's that's what he's supposed to be preaching and then he eventually gets, uh, he gets persecuted, they want to kill him so he flees and then he goes back to Jerusalem of all places and we know he just came from Jerusalem so certainly they are going to be re- enraged by his return and they didn't even believe him at least the Christians, the Christians didn't believe him Barnabas then helps him uh, be introduced to the Christians and he preaches there too look there verse 28 So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That is uh, his hometown. And then look at the concluding verses 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Right? So that message that he once so opposed that the Messiah delivers his people through his own death, he now embraces. So this is what he writes in Galatians, right? Speaking about justification, how he, can be right, how he can be right with the Lord, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham, namely, we are made right by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's Paul right there. The message he denied, now he's called to herald forward. He's called to live and preach this good news of the gospel. You know, this passage, as we reflect um, for the next ten minutes or so in closing, this passage reminds us a lot about salvation. Number one, it reminds us that when God saves, it is God who saves. Man does not and cannot save himself. And this passage makes it clear. So, now in, in, in this uh, conversion of Saul, there are unique things, right? He's knocked off his horse by bright light shining around. Jesus himself appears to him. Uh, if you remember, he does that so that uh, Paul would become an apostle. That is a mark of an apostle that, that Jesus would appear to him. Um, but there are a lot of things that apply to us. From start to finish, when God saves, it is God who saves. So God arrested Saul on the Damascus road, right? God sent Ananias to help him, and presumably school him in the ways of the Christians. God gave Saul his very own spirit. This is, after all, the pattern of salvation, isn't it? You just think of salvation. How do Christians, how does the Bible present salvation to us today? This is what Paul would go on to write in 1 Timothy 1.15. Go ahead and turn there now. 1 Timothy 1.15. And we see, we're reminded so clearly that it is God who saves in salvation. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is Paul writing, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the story of the Bible, that we as men, sinful men, need something outside of ourselves to save us, right? We need a righteousness outside of ourselves. Which is why Jesus Christ came into the world to save us. I'm not saying that we don't do anything in salvation Jesus Christ calls us To do things, right? We are supposed to repent and believe But even that Even the things that God lays on us In terms of responsibility Is a gift So Paul can say in Ephesians 2 For by grace you have been saved through faith And this, and this That is salvation, that is faith, that is repentance And this is not your own doing It is the gift of God Not a result of works So that no one may boast. He also says this. This is Paul. No one else, or no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Meaning that if you don't have the Spirit, you can't comprehend the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So when God saves, it is God who saves. This brings us to the second reminder. When God saves, He saves by His grace. When God saves, He saves by His grace. So you know when Paul wrote there again in 1 Timothy Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners he continues on. He says, of whom I am the worst. You know when he penned this confession I can't help but think that he was thinking of how he approved of the blood of the martyrs being spilled. Right? When he says, of whom I am the worst don't you think that in his mind ran through all those memories of seeing Stephen be split open by rocks? All the things that he said and felt and thought, ultimately we know that is against Jesus Christ himself, which is why Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus so identifies with the church body that to persecute the body is to persecute the head that is Christ. Can you imagine all the shame? and guilt that Paul must have felt, maybe, during his lifetime for the things he had done, for the things that he had left undone, for all the things he could have stopped. Um, you know, for you, for those who joined the church, uh, this last bunch, I sat down with them and, you know, wrote down their testimonies. I wanted to get to know them. And what was a the common theme for those people, for a number of them, and I think for us all, uh, is, the, is the, the feeling that we need to punish ourselves because of the shame and the guilt that we feel. Right? So Jesus' blood is not enough, we think, and so we feel like we need to punish ourselves in our shame and in our guilt. But what is so awesome here is that Paul, if you read through the epistles, there's nothing in the epistles that makes us think that he needs to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? Right? He says, I am the worst. He knows that, he knows his past. He knows where he's come from. But he knows the gospel. That there's free and full and finished work. Full forgiveness, finished work in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of us. So this is what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And he goes on, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's an example for us today. If we might feel like we are somehow more sinful than Paul, he says, no, I am more sinful and I've been made an example God lavish His patience towards me, His love towards me by forbearing with me so that He might show us today that there is no one too sinful to be saved. So the question for you all, if maybe you visit and you know yourself not to be a Christian, what is your conscience telling you that guilt and that shame that you feel? You know, I have a, a number of friends, one I'm thinking of in particular, who feels weighted down by the burden of for sin, she's not a Christian, really just weighed down, and uh, there are certain triggers in her life that uh, come up and up again, and she's always so quick to, to feel bad, which is an okay thing, but so quick then to come along and say, it's okay, it's okay. So you, you, you would literally see her throughout the year on these, these um, dates that remind her of what she had done, <clears throat> sort of feeling bad, but then quickly saying, it's okay. And then, like you know, the the next time it rolls around, the same thing. She feels better, conscience is nagging her, conscience given to her by God, and she's up there, right there, saying, "No, it's okay, it's okay, Uh, everything will be okay." You see her? She's preaching her own gospel to herself, right? The it's okay gospel. I am okay the way I am, but yet her conscience tells her otherwise. Friends, what does your conscience tell you today? Whatever you're using to to bolster up um, your own opinions about yourself, resist that urge, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's relationships, whether it's television, or a bucket of ice cream. Those things finally will never pacify your conscience, your God-given conscience to remind you to turn to Jesus Christ who forgives you of your sins. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Guilt in a godly sense. Remorse in a godly sense. Paul says that that guilt is supposed to lead us to godly repentance. And that's a brother who knew that. The question for us today is have we actually done that? Follow Paul's footsteps by repenting and believing. If not, repent and believe. Trust this good news that Jesus Christ grants forgiveness to everyone who calls on His name. He is rich in mercy, the Bible says, rich in grace. For those who repent and believe, there is no one, no person too sinful to be saved, and no one righteous enough to escape his need of being saved. And he saves all people by his grace. Murderers, we know that from Paul and Saul, or sorry, David, the sexually immoral, thieves, you name it. He saves them. And he saves us if we would repent and believe. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to magnify God's grace in salvation, then you've got to own who you were. You've got to own who you were. And it's a beautiful thing, which is why Paul can say, I boast in the cross alone. And he says, in my weakness, God's grace is magnified. In other words, we all should be able to say, yes, I did in fact struggle with that. I I, I lust, and so I am an adulterer previously. I lied, and so I am a liar previously. I stole things, and so I am a thief previously. But God's grace does this. He forgives. And in that, the gospel is made beautiful, isn't it? Which is why I'm so encouraged in speaking to some of you um, about some of the things that you've really wrestled with throughout your life. And you own it and you say, This is what I struggle with, but now I'm a Christian. Can you imagine if we all, I mean, there's only like 35 of us, if we all go into Hacienda and in the Heights talking about what we were and what we are now? We're not perfect. But God's grace is renewing us. You know how beautiful that is? To acknowledge fully and freely, yes, I'm a sinner, but God's grace saves me in Jesus Christ. There is no one too sinful to be saved. And here Paul reminds us of that. Praise God for this example of what it looks like to submit himself to the true authority and then to realign his life according to the mission of God to live for his glory. That's our job as well. Submit to Christ the King and to live out mission for His name. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we praise You as the great Creator, the one who deserves all worship, the one who is worthy of all worship, The one whose name is great. And so right now, Lord, we bless your holy name. As scripture calls us to. And at the same time, Lord, we confess that oftentimes we live for the fame of our own name. We want to direct the ways of our lives and live apart from you. But Lord, we thank you that by your spirit, you call us back. You convict us of our sin. You even give us a conscience by your grace. To tell us where we err from your ways and your will and what you want for our lives. We thank you, Lord, that we are counted among the number of people who acknowledge that we are sinful. But yet we look to you and we recognize that you are so gracious in giving us Christ. Who came into the world to save us. So, Lord, change our hearts, we pray. We pray that you would give us a greater desire to live on mission for you. To carry your name before the people that you have brought along our paths our neighbors, our co-workers, our family. And Lord, we pray that we would do so in an absolutely humble way, recognizing, like Paul, what we deserved, and recognizing with Paul the great grace that you have lavished on us in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.